Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome again to the Neighborhood Church. We're so glad that you're here tuning in online, you're here in person, or maybe you're checking this sermon out later on our podcast or website. As the kiddos make their way on out, I want to tell you a story briefly about a time that I was a kid. I was seven or eight years old, and I was in a Sunday school class. And there was a friend that whispered a secret to me. And suffice it to say, he shared with me one of his spiritual practices, you might say. And so I listened, and then he said, all right, I'll show you. And now that all the kids have left, it's safe. Because what my friend showed me in the corner of a Sunday school room, just don't worry, okay. He took his hand and he put it down like this. Can you see? And he looked around and did this. For those of you watching online, I won't ask Maria to zoom in on my left hand. Those of you joining on the podcast, let me explain what I'm doing I'm extending my middle finger down to the ground. You see, what my friend whispered to me in that Sunday school class is that every once in a while, he said like once every hour, I just put my middle finger down to the floor to show Satan that I don't want nothing to do with him. (laughs) Thank the Lord our children's minister Carla is laughing. Because I doubt very much that back in that room right now, little Audrey and Cisco and the rest are learning to, okay, now point it down real good. I don't remember a thing that was taught at the Episcopal Church of the Resurrection in East Dallas in that Sunday school. But I remember my boy flipping off Satan in hell once every hour, every time we were in church together. Looking back, I think that his spiritual practice was about hedging his bets. Because I think what he experienced is what I experienced, and perhaps maybe what some of you experienced, and that is a deep-seated fear of winding up in the clutches of the devil, or worse, remaining so forever in hell. And so in his seven- or eight-year-old way, He was hedging his bets, but it was rooted in fear. It was rooted in worry. And whether or not you were a Sunday school kid that ever flipped off the devil and his angels, American pop Christianity is the water in which we all grew up in, Christian or not. It's the water of American pop Christianity. It's a version of Christianity, emphasis on the word version, that is fascinated and obsessed with the afterlife. The only problem is, hear me, the Bible is not. If there's one thing, no, there's many more than one things I hope you took away from last week when we began our series, but if there's another thing, it's that You walked away understanding that the Bible is not as fascinated and obsessed with the afterlife as American pop Christians are. 
The American pop Christianity gospel is do this so that you can go to heaven when you die and not burn in hell forever. But the problem is that there's really only two verses. Let me say this again. There are two verses that give us a glimpse of what theologians call the interim state. Do you know what interim means? When you have an interim pastor, interim boss, interim director. That's an in-between. There are two verses in the New Testament that speak of the interim state of heaven. We read one last week in Philippians 1.23, where it's a blink and you miss it, Paul saying that, I would rather depart this body and be with Christ. There's one. The second is Jesus hanging on a cross and a thief, in one of the accounts, says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And then Jesus says what? Today you will be with me, where? In paradise. There's one time that word paradise is used in the gospels, and it's that point. Two verses speaking to the interim state of heaven. Now, I hope that was conveyed last week. There is very little to no data on the interim state. And listen, there's no consensus. You can't Google Christian view of afterlife and find one cohesive PDF document that lays it all out for a billion plus of us. So we need to approach each week with a measure of humility and mystery. But what I hope you also took away from our talk last week on heaven is that for all it is, we can know enough to know this, I believe, with many more than two verses in our Bible. And that's this. Eternal life is contingent upon our connection with the source of life, who is Jesus. We can know God well enough to know that if he gives life and we die, that he's not going to say, okay, well, that was fun. Uh, See you some other time, hopefully. I believe that we can rest assured as our bodies rest in peace that something of us is present to Christ in the embrace of God who is love and lives forever. So if you took anything away from last week, I hope you took that. The other thing I hope you took away with is we just don't know that much. But we know enough to talk about heaven last week. And as Miguel said, buckle your seatbelts. We're going to talk about hell this week. Because if eternal life is contingent upon our connection with the source of life, that begs the question, what about those who refuse, reject, or disconnect from God and life and love? What happens when you reject God? What happens when you persist in sin? What happens when you wreck your life and the lives of others? What happens when you refuse the love and life that Jesus offers the world? In a word, hell. But just what is Jesus in the Bible talking about when we talk about hell? So here's what the heck we're going to talk about tonight. Y'all didn't want to see the first version of this slide. I showed Amy, and she says, don't type that and put that. Just say hell. 
Don't say it in the naughty word way. So hell is what we're going to talk about. What the heck are we going to talk about? Number one, some important disclaimers. Then we're going to offer three broad, big, imperfect views. Then we're going to have two terms that became H-E double hockey sticks. You can imagine this as the teaching half of our sermon. And then I'm going to tell you one parable and read another. Two parables about then that are actually really meant to get us thinking about now. And then I'm going to end with good news. One reminder to end on a good note. My hope is that you can take the seatbelt off, relax, don't buckle up too hard. I hope that you leave here more confident in the relentless love of God and your place with him. That's my hope. But first, some important disclaimers. You with me? As I said a moment ago, there's virtually nothing in the Old Testament and very little in the New Testament about the interim state, the immediately after life. This week and last week, you might be wondering, well, talk more about where my grandparents are and my beloved ones. I mentioned it last week, and if you have questions, please, please do one of two things. Would you write a question on those index cards on our table up front and plop them in that basket? Or email those questions to adam at tncgarland.com. That's adam at tncgarland.com. We hope, Lord willing, to have a Q&A time about heaven, hell, resurrection, and return at the end of the month, September 30th. So please drop those questions in. If you're typing them in the chat, we'll see if there are some there that we can address later on. But just know there's virtually nothing about the interim state, but there's a lot about resurrection and judgment. In fact, a lot of what we were even talking about last week in John 14 or at Revelation is really about a renewed heaven and a renewed earth at the end of the age. The Bible talks way more about the resurrection of our bodies than it does a soul on the cloud. Let me just underline that and say it never talks about a soul on a cloud. It never talks about humans becoming angels. It never, ever talks about Peter at the pearly gates. So we come to these two issues when the Bible doesn't even use the word heaven and hell as a little parenthetical together statement in the Bible and we approach it with humility and we approach it with mystery and we say probably a lot of popular concepts have crept into our understanding because American pop Christianity is the water we're swimming in and it says if you're bad you go to the place ruled by Satan and you're tortured forever and if you're good you meet Peter at the pearly gates and you get to live in the heavenly country club forever. There's more about resurrection and judgment. Very little about American pop Christianity. And when they do talk about the end, most everything that's said is said symbolically. Tonight I'm going to tell you two stories that Jesus says. One about what we might consider the interim state and one about the end 
judgment. Both of them are stories, and they're spoken of symbolically, so you approach them with care. Now, I'll also say that hell, hear me, especially you kiddos, save your middle fingers, hell is not ruled by Satan. If Satan is a non-human personal being, he ain't in charge of heaven. No matter how many Iron Maiden album covers you've seen, Satan is not at the throne and realm of heaven. Period. Period. When the Bible speaks symbolically about hell and the lake of fire in Revelation, which approach with care, it's a 22-chapter political cartoon from politics from 2,000 years ago. So we approach that with care, and we consider how whatever the lake of fire is, listen, it's for Satan and his angels, not ruled by Satan and his angels. And by the way, death gets thrown into the lake of fire. The realm of the dead gets thrown into the lake of fire. How do you burn death? How do you burn spiritual beings that don't have a body and may not even be personal? We approach with mystery and humility because so much is said symbolically but there's enough that we can glean. But understand that American pop Christianity needs to be checked with what the Bible says. So hell is not ruled by Satan. And I broached this last week, and it may have been a surprise, but humans are not inherently immortal. I hope that that didn't pull the rug out too much from you because I grew up with a lovely, wonderful preacher that I believe is resting in the arms of God. And he did so much good work for the kingdom. And he also said every week that you have an immortal soul and it's going to exist forever in heaven or in hell. And I think that if, if he really was pressed, he would know and he would have remembered where in, second, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says that God alone is immortal. Or he might remember, and we can remember from our history books and our seminary, that the idea of an immortal soul is Plato, the Greek philosopher, not the Bible. It's hidden in plain sight because in John 3.16, if you believe, you get eternal life. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Then in 2 Timothy Chapter 1, he said, he has brought immortality to light. He says, here's a gift, and it's called eternal life. The Old Testament has no concept of an eternal soul. In fact, they seem to say the opposite. When you die, your life force, your life breath, wherever it is, it goes back to God. The gift, I think, is something of immortality. I'm not certain that we are inherently immortal. In fact, to put even a finer point on it, Christians love to throw around the world the word heresy. A heresy is a belief that is not sanctioned or condoned by what we would call orthodoxy, which is the bare minimum set of beliefs that you believe to be safely called a Christian. Orthodoxy. 
which is right thinking. A heresy is outside of the orthodox box. And there was a heresy called Gnosticism that preached in Paul's day and beyond that the flesh and body is bad, the soul is good, you need to thrust off this mortal coil, and you must go be a soul that lives on a cloud. That is a heresy called Gnosticism. But it is the stock and trade of American pop Christianity. Because what happens is we get these ideas from Greek philosophy, from Dante's Inferno about hell, from Bill and Ted's bogus journey, like I did in 1990-something. And then we approach the Bible and we read back into these words like fire and devil and Satan, our understandings that we've picked up along the way. And then when we come to what the Bible seems to talk a lot about, like judgment, we bristle. Because American pop Christianity does not want to consider that our lives matter before God. We bristle because we don't want to be held accountable for the things we do. And there's something deep and innate within us that looks at the wickedness of the world, at human trafficking, at abuse, at genocide, and we say, that ought to be judged. Just don't bring it back on me. Yet there's something innate that is something of the image of God that can look out at the world and say, this is not okay. Can't we agree on this? This must be dealt with. Can't we agree on this? It is unconscionable that millions of Jews are slaughtered because of a political idea. It's unconscionable that they're slaughtered in Rwanda for belonging to another tribe. It's unconscionable that indigenous peoples were held at gunpoint and marched off of their soil. It's unconscionable that in 1942, Japanese-born immigrants, where two-thirds of them were born in America, were rounded up into internment camps. These things must be dealt with. As long as it doesn't come back on me. But judgment is a clear teaching that awaits everyone at the end of the age. God is so committed to his renewal project that he will set everything right in the end. And whatever is not love and not life will be dealt with. And whatever we mean by that is something of what we mean by hell. Now, some imperfect views. Probably America pop Christianity swims in the waters of the infernalist position. This is the traditional position, popularized really in the medieval era. We can thank St. Augustine, Tertullian, for codifying this. And that is a view that says that hell is eternal conscience torment. Do you know what I mean by that? Eternal in that it never ends. 
conscious in that they're aware of the torment and torment in the fact of it's torment. It's horrible. Dante wrote an allegorical, metaphorical story that envisioned a lot of painful and crazy, torturous ideas in hell with different rings and different um, uh, caste system. And it was a metaphor about this world and the sufferings that we engender. But what happened is it's like you put this huge and popular movie out into the world and everybody says, oh, yeah, this is exactly what the world is like. The problem is it's like putting a Marvel movie out there that six billion people saw and they're like, well, I guess superheroes are a thing. This must be true. And so what happened with Augustine is he began to work out this theological system and he contributed so greatly to Christian theology, but one of his lasting contributions is that you have a soul, and it's immortal, and if it's not immortal, God must make it immortal so that you can be kept alive to be tortured forever. Because the thought was, many other theologians were saying, why should a sin in this mortal, temporal, non-eternal body, be punished forever. Then Augustine and Tertullian, and then hundreds of years later, Calvin, would say, because you sinned against an eternal God. To which I, Adam, not a theologian, say, huh? How is that just? But this became the water we're swimming in. It was popularized, but the biblical data is less clear and less supportive. And not to mention the theological problems that if we are not immortal, as the Bible seems to teach, then God has to keep you alive so he can keep torturing you, while a few yards or light years away, everybody else is kicking it in heaven. Doesn't that raise a lot of questions about God? But many of us haven't considered this because we are swimming in the waters of American pop Christianity and we want to hedge our bets and flip off the ground because we want to make sure that it's not true. And sometimes we might ignore the whispers that maybe it's not. There's something about the lake of fire and the idea of experiencing eternal darkness that if you look really closely, ask, what's eternal? Is it the fire and darkness? Or is it the person that's burning alive forever? Do that research, and I think you'll be surprised. Which leads us to a second, albeit imperfect, view. The conditionalist view. The conditionalist, or maybe you've heard it as the annihilationist view. That immortality is conditional, that those who ultimately reject God will cease to exist. This involves some kind of punishment, some kind of consequence. It's imperfect because all of these views are imperfect because watch. You show me a list of Bible verses and I'll show you the other one that we can have to wrestle with. You show me your theological system and I can show you Another theological system, which is why we have this disclaimer on the bottom of the page. There's simply not enough biblical data. The Bible cares less about this than we do. 
And by the way, there's simply no orthodox position or theological consensus. And let me tell you why. The third imperfect view is the universalist view. Or maybe it's the universalist's little brother, the inclusivist view. Shades of the same, that all will be saved in the end. Now, you need to understand that these universalists didn't just sit there and say, well, God is love and you know what? Let's just all get along. No, it's actually rooted in Christ's cosmic, world-changing death and resurrection. And they point to some passages in Romans and the Corinthian and Colossian letters, and they say, what does he mean when he says all? Again, it's imperfect, but understand, they're not just doing it because this is the warm, fuzzy view. It's rooted in Christ's cosmic work. And number two, many times it involves beyond death opportunities to come back to Jesus. And they can quote some very strange Bible verses there as well. And the reason why I said that even this is not a heresy is because the guy that sat over the council of Nicaea that made the document that said this is orthodox with a bunch of other bishops in the year 325 was a universalist. His name was Gregory of Nyssa. And he learned from a church father named Origen before him. I'm not saying it's a majority view. I'm saying this. Hear me. Why are people so mad about hell? And that they are so right of something I'm trying to convey to you, we are just not certain of. And why do traditionalists or infernalists delight in telling others who they know is going to hell? And I say to this person, if you haven't thought seriously about a three-year-old Mesopotamian child, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, getting murdered. And if you think that she belongs in an eternal conscious torment, I say to you, have you met Jesus? And if you're not wrestling with this, why not? If God is love, how can six million Jews move from a gas chamber in Auschwitz immediately into God's eternal gas chamber? Is God not more loving and just and merciful than you and me? I'm not saying here's why, here's how, here's this. I can give you my best guesses. Please hear me. I'm telling you. Think about it, read about it, pray about it, seek the Lord about it. And you and hundreds of other theologians that have studied this in the original languages and context still don't have a clear sense. So approach with humility. And I'll tell you that I'm at a place in my theological journey where I simply cannot, for biblical and theological reasons, believe that hell is eternal conscious torment. I can't can't do it. And it's not warm fuzzy. It's because 
I've read John 3.16, Romans 6.23, and the rest. And I've read the fact that in Acts, they never preach about hell. If they can preach the gospel without scaring people and children into or out of hell, I can too. And if you can't, why are you better than Peter and Paul? Why does John in his gospel, so that you might know Jesus and receive eternal life, never say hell? Why are we obsessed with hell and who goes there? Understand now, there are some warnings. And these are two terms that they do speak of it. The first is Hades. If you're reading the NIV or the NRSV, you'll see it just straight up Hades a lot of the time. It was a Greek word that existed before the New Testament, but when they wrote down the New Testament and translated the Old Testament into Greek, they said, this will do, and they grabbed the word Hades, and they used it to translate the Hebrew word Sheol in the Old Testament. Now, we talked about Sheol last week. I'll tell you about it this week. In the Old Testament, you see the word Sheol as the realm of the dead. Let me tell you this. Trust me on this. Read any Bible scholarship. Read any study Bible. Read anything ever. Old Testament, there is but one place in the realm of the dead. It's called Sheol. There is no heaven. There is no hell. There is Sheol. Deal with it. Now, there's some concept that later develops about a resurrection of the righteous. And then the New Testament says, here's Jesus. He's giving eternal life. And it develops more fully so we get a fuller picture come the New Testament. But understand that when you're reading Hades in the Gospels, it's Jesus who's Jewish talking to a Jewish audience saying, the realm of the dead. Stay with me real quick. The creed, the orthodox PDF document litmus test for who can say I'm a Christian, Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Protestant, fill in the, the one thing we can all agree on says this, Christ descended into hell. Do you think that creed means Christ went to the realm ruled by Satan so Satan could kick him in the bottom and torture him until he rose from the dead? Shake your heads no, because what they're talking about is Hades, the realm of the dead, which is why many English translations of this creed say he descended to the dead. Now we're going to get real weird, hold on to that thought in one of our parables, because I'm going to make the case, you might make a case, that when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, the experience of Jesus and that thief and Lazarus is for them paradise. It's not the same experience for everyone. And that has something to do with how we choose to receive or reject the love of God. But hold on to that thought. Understand now that when we're talking about Hades, we're talking about blanket realm of the dead, the grave. The second word gets a little more oomph in it. And that's Gehenna. If you look at Jeremiah 7, look at Jeremiah 19. I really encourage you to do it. I'm already way, like, worried about time. But understand that Jeremiah, centuries before Jesus, warns his people that if you don't 
get on board with God, you're going to be pulled into Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. To Jeremiah's audience and to Jesus' audience, when he uses that word, they say, oh, I know that place. Listen, do you know where your city dump is? Raise your hand. They did, and it was Gehenna. It was on the southwest corner of Jerusalem. It's a literal place. And it had a shady, checkered past because back in the day, in the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, is where children were sacrificed to Molech. You can read about that in 2 Kings and Chronicles. So it had a bad rap. It was a nasty place where horrible things happened. And then it became a garbage dump. And what do you do if you're in East Texas or in Gehenna? you got to burn your trash. So it was a place filled with rot and worms and maggots. Oh, are the wheels starting to turn now? And fire. Oh, and horrendous, horrific wickedness was happening. Oh, but when Jesus says, unless you repent, you will be brought down to hell. He says, unless you turn away from your ways you're going to wind up just like our garbage dump. And when Jesus said that in Luke 13, he was speaking of a group of revolutionaries that rose up against Rome and they got slaughtered and thrown in the trash heap. And in 70 AD, when Jesus talks about no stone on this temple is going to be left on top of each other, he was right, because in A.D. 70, the Jewish people, who did not repent of their violent and idolatrous ways, rose up against Rome, and they reduced Jerusalem, just like Jeremiah said before, it happened with the Babylonians, then Jesus came and said it's going to happen again, and it did with the Romans. What he is talking about is, if you don't reject your way of violence and sin, and hatred, you are going to find yourself in a hell on earth. Now, in case you think they're crazy, what about Ukraine in the last two years is not hell on earth? What about Syria is not hell on earth? What about Martin Luther King trying to will the nation of America 50 years ago did not look for African-American people in the South like a hell on earth. If you don't turn from your violence and your hatred and your power and your disgusting racism and, and your sexual abuse, you will wind up creating a hell on earth. What you reap is what you're going to sow. So repent over and over and over. He's saying... Come to me. This is good news. There's forgiveness. There's life. There's freedom. Imagine two trains. One is a broad way that leads to destruction. And one is the narrow gate of entering the city. That is the greatest commandment. When he talks about the gate, he's talking about the greatest commandment. 
The train is filled with people who want to do their way, thank you very much. I don't care who I hurt, thank you very much. I don't need God's love, thank you very much. I don't believe that Jesus is Messiah, thank you very much. And they can be the most religious people you've ever seen. And they can be filled with hate in their heart, and they can be whitewashed tombs, and they're walking dead unless they turn and are made alive with the eternal life that God has to offer in his son, Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. But make no mistake, this Jesus is a narrow gate. There is but one way. There is but one person that will bring you through to the other side of life. But you got to turn. Because the way of the world persists in dehumanizing and murdering. Human history is filled with it. And the remarkable thing, lest you think that only a handful of us will find it, the narrow gate is the way that leads to life. And the way that leads to life is a person. And lest you think that he will be shamed at the end to not have as many people as he's made room for in John 14. Because his father's house has many rooms. And there is room for all. The question is whether or not you're going to follow him and put it into your GPS and get there. Because he's the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And the degree that we continue to make hell on earth is the degree that we're not putting a middle finger down to the ground. We're doing it to the heavens. And we're rejecting whatever it means to be made in God's image for receiving love and giving love. And this is the warning that Jesus gives. Which is why I don't want you to walk away hearing me say, don't worry about hell. There is no hell. Hell is what you experience when you reject God's life and love. And whatever it means for eternal life, it means you're connected to the source of love and life. And make no mistake, if you persist in making hell on earth for others and rejecting and middle fingering the source of love and life, may God have mercy on you. Because you're practicing and on a trajectory that will ultimately find you weeping and gnashing your teeth in anger. And you'll be like the older brother. When the prodigal came home and found mercy and forgiveness and grace, you might hold too tightly to your own ways of justice. You remember the prodigal son story? Did the father invite him into the party, yes or no? The older brother. He did. He said, son, everything I have is yours. It's always been that way. Story ends. Did the older brother ever come into the party? We don't know. So don't leave it to chance. Come to the party. There's a place for you. Get there. But the way is narrow because it's really hard to give up our own way. It's really hard to trust God for life and forgiveness. So he uses these terms to warn them, not just of the hell that's possible now, but the hell that may await them if they don't get off one train track and into the train that leads to life. Two parables about 
that day, that time, that are really actually parables about now. The first is in Luke 16, 19 to 31. I'm not going to read it. You can open it up and look at it if you have a Bible. I preached on it, I think, sometime not that long ago, maybe in Unvarnished Jesus. Don't worry, I don't remember my sermons, so I don't expect you to all the time. If you get something out of this, praise God, and we're great. I, I literally can't tell you when I preached about it, but I feel like I preached about it recently. Luke 16 is the parable, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's fascinating that Jesus tells a story where the man that's named is a poor beggar that is sat down outside of a gate to a rich man's house. So the poor beggar gets a name, the rich man doesn't. And so the rich man was wearing the finest Gucci clothes, and he ate the finest golden corral buffet. And some of you say, that's not the finest. And I say, have you been to Golden Corral? It's pretty awesome. But the point that they're making is not that he was eating a sandwich or one steak. The point of the story is this man had a buffet a feast that some people in his day had once a year, he was having every day. Finest clothes, lots of food, and he was living it up. And now you got to understand, there were seven versions of this story told in Jesus' day. They had a rich man, they had a poor man. Then both died. One goes and experiences death as Abraham's bosom. Relaxing finally at a golden corral buffet in the sky with Abraham, enjoying rest and peace. The rich man, on the other hand, is experiencing agony. This is when I told you perhaps, maybe, Jesus' Jewish concept was that everyone goes to the realm of the dead, but some people's experience is much nicer than the other. And perhaps the interim state, if we get from this symbolic story a little glimpse that we can add with glimpses from the Old Testament, glimpses from other places in the New Testament, that what is experienced as some as paradise in the arms of God's love, perhaps for others God's love is experienced as a fire because they're going against the grain of the universe. And what we know in Jesus' symbolic story is that the rich man still hasn't learned his lesson. Because when he's experiencing this, he does two things. He doesn't talk to Lazarus, but he talks to Abraham and bosses Lazarus around. Those who have ears to hear, listen. There's something about this story where he cared only for himself in this life and not for Lazarus that showed a trajectory that carried forth in the afterlife. Even as he's experiencing torment, he doesn't say, have mercy. How do I get in? Please help me. I want to come to the party. He says, hey, Abraham, uh, um, tell Lazarus to bring me some water. Doesn't matter that this guy never gave him so much as a drop before. And then Abraham says, oh, I'm so sorry, my child. He says, you had all those good things with your golden corral and Gucci. But now, it's too late. So then, the rich man says, uh, uh, Abraham, tell Lazarus to go back and tell my brothers. So if I have to be here, let's make sure that they don't. Okay? Seven versions of this symbolic story told by other rabbis. 
Jesus adds his own personal twist, okay? This is Jesus' remix, and here's the twist. When he's told, hey, go tell my brothers, we're told in the story, no, they already have the law in Moses. They have what they need to know to experience life. Not even a person, listen, raised from the dead will convince them. Now's the part where I tell you a parable is a story with a hidden meaning. The hidden meaning is this. Self-righteous Pharisees that were very much convinced that they would be right next to Abraham are told that you have what you need for love and life. But you cannot be righteous and ignore the Lazaruses on your doorstep and think that you can make it in. There is something of the law and Moses, read correctly, listen, that looks like the narrow gate. There is something of that time that read correctly looks like loving the Lord your God with everything and loving your neighbor as yourself. Because elsewhere, Jesus tells a self-righteous person, listen, do this and you will live. The second parable, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. This is on the screen. I'm already way over time. Y'all doing okay? Here's another story. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Pause. Jesus is telling a story with everyday things. Every night, the shepherd, at the end of a day of grazing, puts the skinnier, scrawnier goats in a place where it's warm. The sheep remain in the open because they got a bunch of wool, and they're fine. But every shepherd in Jesus' day did this. And they say, ooh, so you're going to do that to every single person that's ever lived? And now they're thinking, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, wait, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply. Understand who has the right to do this is the king. Who's the king? Jesus. The king will say, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is judgment. This is the metric. Then the parable on the darker shadow side 
of the coin continues. Then he says to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Now, this is where we read into the text. Eternal fire. Just because a fire is eternal, and remember this is a symbolic story, we should not take the next leap to say, therefore, everyone that is in there must be alive eternally. You don't have to make that leap. What is eternal? The fire. And it's not just there, it's elsewhere. But I continue. Prepared for whom? The devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? (laughs) I didn't see you. I didn't see you needing clothes or sick or in prison. And he said, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment. Again, what is eternal? The punishment. Again, does eternal mean eternal in perpetuity or eternal in consequence? Does eternal mean you're kept alive forever and ever and ever and ever? Or when I give somebody a... uh, Uh, a death sentence in the mortal sense, I can shoot a guy and he's just dead. It took one instant, but the consequences are far-reaching. He's not alive, he's dead from here on until something happens about it. Eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Because one thing we're said that God does give is eternal life. But perhaps this leaves open the idea that the wages of sin is death. Two parables that seem to suggest that we will be judged. And this rightful king will come and find some unexpected sheep. And the reason I say that these parables are about then, but they're really about now, is because they're meant to get us thinking about the Lazaruses and the sick and the naked and the vulnerable now because they're already living in hell. And to follow the one who is showing us the way to life eternal is to follow him and practice that life today. And the more you love your neighbor, listen to this, is not to get God to see you as a sheep. It's demonstrating you belong to the shepherd. The love of God is really working in you when the love of God is flowing, love of neighbor is flowing out of you. So if to be connected to the source of life is demonstrated by bringing more heaven on earth and more life where there is brokenness, you find that the alternative, the disconnect from life, also holds true. Students, you've been hanging in there. These quotes are on your guide. 
from Brian Zahn's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. If this sermon is already too long and you're done with it, buy this book and read chapter 6. And if you like chapter 6 or not, read the rest of the book. Amy and I read this book, and at alternative times, because we only had one copy, when she was reading, she'd stand up in the living room and cheer. And then when I was reading, I'd jump out of bed and scream, amen. And if you thumb through this copy, you see my Bic pen version of that. Read this if you're done with this sermon. But if you're not, listen to these two quotes. Brian Zahn says that when hate wins, hell is inevitable. Hell is the love of God refused. Both parables speak of the fate of those who refuse to receive and give love. And in the interim state, perhaps that feels like a tortured soul who has forgotten how to give and receive love. And at the end of the age, when we stand before Jesus as sheep or goats, perhaps the end state is that God gives us what we want, which is having nothing to do with his life. And so with a grievous heart, God gives us death. So the big idea and a final reminder is this. The way to avoid today's Gehenna and tomorrow's eternal fire is a turning to Jesus demonstrated by love of neighbor. Whatever glimpses of hell we get, don't mess around to find out what it is. I hope that the universalists are right. I really do. Wouldn't everybody in this room be so thrilled if we got to heaven and the new heavens and new earth and we looked around and we said, dang, them universalists were onto something. And I really hope that the infernalists are wrong. Because if we can't sleep at night thinking of millions and billions of people eternally, consciously torment, tormented, man, I wonder how it grieves God's heart. Because his will and wonder and wish is that all would be saved. That's again in the Timothy letters. So understand this. We don't love our neighbor to get God to love us. Sheep say yes to God's love and it's expressed to the world around them. And it just shows that you've been a sheep. That's all. So here's a reminder to end on a good note. Miguel read some of Romans 8 earlier, and then I came up here and preached the long sermon. So I want you to leave confident of this. More from Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. And he closes this chapter like this. So what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? 
No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Because as it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're just considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. P.S. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hell is not God's hatred of sinners. God has one disposition to his creatures. And it is unrelenting love. The problem and the choice is that that love is a burning, consuming fire. And we want to be kept safe and secure in his love. We don't want to turn and go against the grain. For whatever that means is hell. We want to turn and know that we are safe and secure in God's unrelenting love. So Jesus says, come to me. Come, follow me. I am the way and the truth and the life. There is love and life to receive and give that is eternal in quality and quantity. Stay open to this love that is inseparable in Christ. This love will do its work now and forever. Do not be afraid. Only believe. This is the good news. The alternative is terrible. But it need not be yours. For if we are in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor anything in all creation can separate us. Kept secure in the loving embrace of God. Amen and amen.